a text this Lord's Day is found in Mark chapter 14, verses 18 through 21. Then we read the following words. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. Son of man indeed goeth, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good word for that man if he had never been born. And it appears that evil, misery, or suffering of some kind has the upper hand in a situation and we cannot possibly see how God could take such a horrible event and work it out for his glory and for our good. We should reflect upon that most heinous sin that was committed in plotting to crucify, to betray and to crucify the sinless Son of God. Here is the heinousness of that particular sin is directly proportionate to the one against whom that heinous sin was committed, the sinless Son of God. It is no doubt a most abominable sin to slaughter unborn children while in the womb of their mother. But even the millions of babies that have been slaughtered by abortion cannot come close to the slaughter of the sinless Son of God. For although those babies in the womb are innocent of any civil crimes, they are yet sinners, every single one of them. Sinners, because to them has been imputed the sin, the first sin of Adam. And sinners because they have received from Adam via their own parents a corrupt nature. And because of that, they, like all of us, justly deserve God's holy wrath and condemnation. But that was not true of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was from the moment of his supernatural incarnation in the womb of Mary, absolutely perfect and without sin. And from that point on, and forevermore, he continues to be sinless and free of all sin. The persecution, the suffering, and the death which he endured during were, therefore, most heinous because he was most perfect. Let me ask you, did God fail? to oversee and to direct every sin 
committed against Christ to the glory of God and to the good of his people? Of course not. God sovereignly overrules that sin, the sin of Judas, to promote the salvation of his people. This the Lord will do, not only in the life of Christ, but what we seek to understand today is that the Lord will do so in the life of his people as well. Dear ones, we are so good in seeing with a clear vision God's sovereign hand in the betrayal and in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That here, dear ones, is a haven of rest for the perplexed souls who cannot see how the Lord will glorify himself and bless his people through such terrible things that happen in our lives. Such sins, such crimes, such suffering and misery. For if Almighty God, dear ones, brought blessing and salvation to undeserving sinners by that which was most heinous, a sin most heinous committed against the Son of God, he will also bring blessing and salvation to his people in every situation that is less heinous, even in the intentional slaughter of unborn children, or in that situation in your life concerning which you are so confused and perplexed right now. For he has promised, and he cannot lie, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 Dear ones, let us rejoice today that our sovereign God was indeed at work at the last supper that Christ had with his disciples. And he was at work in two distinct ways, as we see in our passage today. First of all, in the identification of the traitor, Mark 14, verses 18 through 20, and secondly, in the curse pronounced upon the traitor, in Mark 14, verse 21. First of all, then, our sovereign God was at work in the identification of the traitor. Look with me again at our text. Mark 14, verses 18 through 20. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. Note first when. When this announcement of a traitor was made by Christ. Mark 14.18 begins with these words, And as they sat and did eat. Really the text says, And while they were reclining and eating. It is very unlikely, dear that Jesus would have interrupted the Passover meal since it was a sacramental meal of the Old Testament by identifying who would betray him. 
Thus, it is more likely that it was after the Passover meal, which was not intended to satisfy the physical needs of the body, and it was before the Lord's Supper was instituted, which was not intended to satisfy the physical needs of the body either. That the Lord and his disciples were reclining and eating at that particular time together. They were eating together a common meal. Thus the announcement of a traitor among them was most likely made during this common meal that occurred between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. Observe secondly what was said by Christ in this first announcement. While they were reclining and eating this common meal together, the Lord broke the festive spirit and mood with this sobering announcement. Verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. Mark 14, 18. Talk about changing the whole mood of their meal. This was an announcement that, that none of them could continue to, to laugh or to enjoy once they heard that not only was Christ to be betrayed, which had been prophesied by Christ at least three times previous to this particular mention of betrayal, but now the Lord says that it's one of you who are even with me that will betray me. The Lord now had their undivided attention. And there are a few observations about this announcement that we should not overlook. First, this is actually the first of two announcements that we find in our text today that was made by the Lord concerning a traitor. The first announcement of the one who would betray the Lord seems to be more general in nature. One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. It doesn't seem to be so narrow or so selective. At that particular point, any of them might have said, and as we see in just a moment, they, they did say, it, is it I? Here the Lord of this general states that the betrayer is one of the twelve disciples who is sitting with him at the table. I'd have you know, dear ones, the sovereign plan of redemption was unfolding before the very eyes of these disciples, but they could not see it. The announcement that one of them would betray Christ brought sorrow to the hearts of these disciples. How could such an awful thing happen, perhaps they thought? Who would be such a hypocrite among us in order to betray the Lord Jesus Christ? How could this possibly bring glory to God or edification to the church of Jesus Christ? Well, we must understand, dear ones, that Christ, being the eternal Son of God, was not caught by surprise. He knew from the very beginning who would betray him. 
According to John 6.64, there is a testimony of John declares that he knew from the very beginning that it was Judas that would betray him. And so we again focus on the point that Jesus was not a victim. He was not a victim to the evil designs of Satan or Judas or the chief priests. Our Savior freely offered his life. He freely fulfilled each step in the sovereign and eternal plan of the most holy and most wise God, even though that plan involved the plotting and the scheming of one of his very own disciples who would betray him. There was the Lord knew what was going on in the mind of Judas. His eyes pierced into the very soul of Judas. Judas was laid bare before the all-seeing eye of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ did not run from God's eternal plan, even though it meant for him a suffering like no man has ever suffered from the creation of the world into the end of the world. But why did Christ endure this betrayal, this betrayal of a friend, of a close companion, of one of his own disciples? Why did he endure such a betrayal? Let me give to you two reasons first as we consider this question. First of all, the Lord Jesus endured this betrayal of a friend because it was God's will. As stated in John chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, there we read these words. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel, his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Or literally, ye may believe that I am. That I am the eternal Son of God. That I am the great I am. As you see this particular prophecy fulfilled, that one of you will betray me. It is according to the will of God. And you will know that I am who I said that I am, even God, come in the flesh. You see, there is Christ came to fulfill all righteousness. Not only the law of God, not only the express commandments of God, but even he came to fulfill the suffering of man that was appointed by God. The Lord Jesus did not drink of, of the cup of God's law and refused to drink of the cup, cup of suffering. He who was eternally the Son of God, he who existed from all eternity, submitted to the most painful suffering in not only his body, but also in his soul. He did not draw the line and say, 
this far and no further. I will keep God's commandments perfectly for sinners, but I will not suffer the shame and the disgrace and the pain and the heartache that sinful mind will heap upon me. Jones, let us not think that our lives as Christians will not involve suffering as well. It is true that our suffering will not be efficacious in bearing the wrath of God as was Christ's suffering. However, our suffering, we can be sure, our suffering as Christians will be the means God very often uses in making us more like Christ. The means that he uses in crushing our pride, the means he uses in purifying our love for him and for others, the means that he uses in leading others even to Christ as they behold and witness our suffering for righteousness' sake and for truth's sake and for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we desire to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, as Paul said in Philippians 3.10. But we must also desire to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings, if we would truly know Christ. We must be willing to be ridiculed for the sake of the truth. The, the apostle said that to the world, and to even many professing Christians, we're scum. We're the off-scouring of the world. We're treated like dirt. That's what the apostle said about himself because he took such a stand for the truth, an unpopular stand for the truth, that, any, that even many professing Christians did not agree with at that particular time. He stood boldly for the truth of Jesus Christ. And when we stand boldly for the truth of Jesus Christ, even if it is rejected, by the world, and even if it is rejected by many who profess Christ, we will suffer for the Lord. We must expect it. We who only desire to know the power of Christ's resurrection, but do not desire to know the fellowship of the sufferings, do not know the Christ of the Bible. The Christ of the Bible is one who suffered before he was exalted. And we will suffer before we are exalted and before we are glorified. You know, we can look at Judas with such scorn and yet what about the various forms of betrayal in our own lives? When we make excuses for following Christ, into the path of righteousness and truth because it's too difficult, it's too uncomfortable, it's too unpopular with family or friends or co-workers. And so we make excuses why we can't do so. We want a comfortable Christianity. We want a popular Christianity. But there is no such thing as a comfortable Christianity and a popular Christianity in the midst of an evil world. Christ calls us to follow him in suffering for the sake of righteousness and truth, just as he did. Secondly, the Lord Jesus endured this betrayal of a friend 
not only to fulfill the will of God, but because he was to be a sympathetic high priest in all that he suffered in this wicked world. One of the reasons that the Lord went through all that he went through, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, is this. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He is able to come to the help and to the aid of them who are likewise tempted. We have a sympathetic high priest, dear ones, who has gone through suffering that we have never known or experienced. We can never say the Lord does not understand what I'm going through. And it'd be a truthful statement. The Lord knows. Believe me, the Lord knows. Further we find in Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And here's the encouragement to us. Because we have such a high priest who is touched with all of our infirmities, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy to find grace to help in time of need. Do you need help? Are you going through some particular trial in your life? Are you suffering in some way? Is there some sin that has a grasp of you that just won't seem to let go? Is there some perplexity or some confusion in your life? The Lord Jesus Christ has come unto him. Come boldly. Lay hold of the grace that is the foundation of his throne. It is a throne of grace and a throne of mercy. Come unto him and seek his help. He understands. He knows. We do not need, dear ones, a Mary or a Joseph or any other saint to intercede for us with more compassion than does our Savior, who is the only mediator between God and man. But a blasphemous thought it is to insist that we need to ask the saints in heaven to bring our needs before the Lord, because the Lord does not understand, because the Lord is not compassionate, because the Lord is not merciful. And he is the very one who died for sinners and even the chief of sinners. How could there have been any man who ever suffered as Christ suffered when he was betrayed even by Judas? For there was no master, there was no teacher, there was no friend ever so faithful, ever so true, ever so righteous, ever so compassionate, Forever so merciful as the Lord Jesus Christ. Did the Lord know the pain and heartache of being rejected and betrayed by those whom he had treated with the utmost love and mercy? Yes, he knew. More than any man shall ever know, he knew. Christ may have known who would betray him, namely Judas. But that does not mean that the betrayal of Judas 
what God's painful to him. And I would submit that the sinlessness of Christ made his suffering the betrayal of Judas even greater than our suffering a similar experience when we are betrayed. For there is never a greater betrayal of all that was good and holy than the betrayal of our blessed Savior. Therefore, there is one who will come to help and comfort you in times of betrayal or rejection for the cause of Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who will come. Observe thirdly, under this first main point, the reaction of the disciples in Mark 14, 19. There we find these words. And they began to be sorrowful and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? Dear ones, sorrow in the heart of Christians should always accompany betrayal of Christ and his truth. Whether it is we who have betrayed Christ and his truth or whether it is others who have betrayed Christ and his truth, sorrow is always the appropriate affection and emotion to have in our hearts. We should not exalt ourselves in pride when others betray the cause of Christ, looking to ourselves and saying how spiritual we are, how good we are, how knowledgeable we are, because we have not fallen into the same sin. Do we really understand the corruption of our own hearts? Do we really understand how evil our hearts are by nature? If it were not for our Savior who intercedes for us moment by moment that our faith not fail, and who restrains us from falling into such sins of betrayal against Christ and his truth, we would all become a Judas. Here when there is by nature a Judas in all of us. Never forget it, that it may humble you, that it may break your heart before God, that there is a Judas in all of us. With Paul, you must always confess, I am what I am by the grace of God. No other reason but the grace of God. Period. The grace of God. Not I am what I am by my own good natural nature. I am what I am by my even-tempered personality. I am what I am by my own gifts and abilities and resources. It is all blasphemy. It all robs God of his glory, which is due to him, when we do not attribute it all to the grace of God. Times of betrayal are not times to become arrogant, but rather times to become humble before our God. We also note that the disciples were not only sorrowful in their hearts, but evidenced that sorrow by their words as well. They each one asked the Lord, Is it I? Literally, they put the question in the negative. It is not I, is it? It is not I, is it? They were looking for, hoping for, expecting a negative answer. No, 
All the disciples except Judas seem to have put this question to the Lord at this time. Judas would ask the same question in just a moment. Fourthly, under our first main point, let us see now the second announcement made by the Lord in identifying the one who would betray him in Mark 14.20. There we read, And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The second announcement to the disciples further narrows the field to those who were dipping out of the same dish with the Lord. How many were doing so, we do not know. We're not told. However, it would appear that there was not simply one dish from which all of those gathered dipped. Otherwise, this announcement would be no different than the one he made originally, the first announcement, which simply said that the traitor was one who was eating with him. This seems to go further, to identify the traitor as one who is dipping out of the same dish, a dish full of sauce. It was called the sop, to dip the bread in the sauce and to partake at this common meal together. There were likely therefore several dishes of sauce around the table into which those who were nearest together would dip their bread. Thus it would seem that the Lord now moves from the twelve to perhaps two or three, a smaller number who were likely dipping from the same dish in, a, in identifying the one who would betray him. Well, if that's the case, it appears that the noose is getting ever so much more tight around the neck of Judas. You can almost see Judas squirming there under the all-seeing eye of the Lord. This process of the Lord where he begins more generally and begins to narrow the scope I think is very similar to what occurred in Joshua chapter 7 where the sin of Achan who had taken clothing and taken the gold that was devoted to destruction in, Jerusalem, in Jericho was gradually exposed by the casting of a lot that first began with the right tribe and then went to the right family and then went to the right father and then went to the right person. Narrowing ever so closely, until that person was identified. Fifthly, consider with me, under the first main point, that Judas now breaks his silence. According to Matthew 26.25, this is not stated in Mark's Gospel, but in Matthew 26.25, Judas now asks the Lord, Is it I? Is it I? He actually asked the same thing that the other disciples had asked, it, it is not I, is it? Judas the hypocrite asked the same question as did the other disciples. But obviously, Judas knows that he is the traitor, for he has already met with the chief priests to betray the Lord in Mark 14, verses 10 and 11. To which question 
The Lord responds, Thou hast said. He doesn't say, No, you're not the traitor. Even though the way that Judas phrased the question, just like the other disciples phrased the question, expected a negative answer, No. Jesus did not say no. He said, Thou hast said it. Thou hast confessed it, basically, that you are the traitor. Now, why did all of the other disciples now know who was to betray Christ? Because it doesn't appear that they did. Well, I would suggest most likely because Christ, as we read Matthew 26, 25, it doesn't say that he said to them all, but it says that he said to Judas. Now, Judas was immediately to, to the left of Jesus, as we've said before in a previous sermon, where he most likely was. But this may have been said, this response may have been given in a more private, subdued manner to Judas. And that's stated to all, for all to hear. I would suggest that Christ, at this point, would show Judas that his sin may be hidden from all the disciples, but it was seen and known by him who was the Son of God. He could not conspire against Christ without Christ's knowledge. Numbers 32.23 says, Be sure your sin shall find you out. You cannot hide your sin forever. You cannot hide your sin indefinitely. In fact, you cannot hide your sin for a moment from the one true living God. Dear we must always remember that when we sin against the Lord, we sin in his very presence. We don't sin as if we were a million miles away from God. We sin in his very presence. The Lord Jesus was making it clear to Judas that his sin of betrayal was like a wife committing adultery with another man in the very presence of her husband. The Lord knew. The Lord saw the wickedness of his heart. This, in fact, is how we should understand, I would submit to you, this is how we should understand all of our unfaithfulness, which we commit in the sight of our God. It is not until we understand our sin in that light that we will become and sense the, the, the shame and the disgrace of committing sin in the very presence of God. It is not until we understand our sin in that light that we will, uh, until we under, uh, understand our sin in the light of having committed it in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, that we will appreciate to the full extent the forgiveness of God. Forgiveness of Christ. What is most amazing about the grace of God is that He, before whom we have committed our spiritual adultery time and time again in betraying Him and being unfaithful to Him, is the very one who has covenanted to save us and to sanctify us from all our spiritual adultery, betrayal, and unfaithfulness. But a Savior is our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Judas now knows that Christ knows about his betrayal. And at that point, he apparently leaves to carry out his wicked scheme. And even the knowledge that Christ knew of his betrayal did not break the heart of Judas. I would submit to you that it's a marvelous evidence of the work of God's grace in the hearts of his people that we know our faithfulness, our unfaithfulness to the Lord is known by him. And that that knowledge breaks our heart. But on the other hand, I would submit to you as well that when that knowledge that God knows our heart and sees our sin does not break our heart, but hardens and calluses our heart, it's a sign of such a callousness and hardness that we must take careful inventory of our own lives. The heart of Judas was not broken, but it was hardened to go out and fulfill his betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our second main point is this. Our sovereign God was at work in the curse pronounced upon the traitor. In Mark 14:21, we read, The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good word for that man if he had never been born. Let us first note the sovereignty of God in the words of Christ. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. The Lord Jesus states that he was going to be betrayed and crucified in accordance with what God had already recorded in his word. In passages no doubt like Psalm 51.7 and Isaiah 53.3 and following. Could there be a more clear statement that nothing that was happening to Christ at this particular time was by mere chance or contrary to the eternal decree of a sovereign God? Even the sin of Judas betraying the Lord Jesus Christ, the sin of the chief priests in falsely accusing the Lord Jesus Christ, the sin of Peter in denying Christ three times, the sin of the disciples in fleeing from Christ because they were afraid. And the sin of Pilate in crucifying Christ were all foreordained to occur for the glory of God and for the good of his people. I would simply state that if these sins which were most heinous were part of God's eternal plan to glorify himself, to glorify his justice in punishing sin, to glorify his grace in forgiving sin, then your sins and mine are also included in the eternal plan of God in order to glorify himself and in order to save wretched sinners like you and me. If the suffering of the sinless Son of God 
was included in the eternal plan of God, so likewise is all of your suffering. This is indeed a great comfort to the Christian. To know that none of what he experiences in this life is without meaning and without purpose. That there is a sovereign plan. And we can say, the Christian can say with Joseph, after Joseph had been betrayed, sold into slavery by his own brothers, and subsequently was used by God to save his very brothers who sold him into slavery. A fitting type of Christ. Joseph said at the end of this particular account, But as for you, speaking to the brothers, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The Christian does not rejoice in his sin, nor in his suffering, for sin's sake or for suffering's sake. But he does rejoice that his God is so great that he even takes his sin and all of his suffering and uses it to glorify himself and even to bless his people. The Christian, as he considers the sovereignty of God in even using this traitor, Judas, the Christian rejoices that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can thwart the good and holy plan that God has for him. Not even his own sin and suffering can thwart that plan. Not even his own misery, not even his own weaknesses can thwart that plan. God will fulfill all of his goodwill towards his people. So the Christian draws comfort from either Joseph, who endured betrayal at the hands of his own brothers, or he can even draw comfort from a Peter who gave way to such fear that he denied even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all there to glorify God and to encourage us, as God's people, to always put our faith and confidence in him and not look to the arm of flesh. Sovereignty of a gracious and holy God, dear ones, is not to be feared by God's children. It is to be embraced by God's children. It is to be a source of comfort and encouragement to God's children. But it is, on the other hand, the sovereignty of God is to be feared by those who hate and despise the Almighty God, or act as though He has no rightful claim upon their lives. The flip side to the sovereignty of God, of course, is the responsibility of man. In Mark 14.21, this has been decreed by God to occur. This is fulfilling the prophecies of God's word that it should occur. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to that man. God, dear ones, is not the author or the approver of sin, even though he foreordains and uses the sin of man to glorify himself. 
and to promote his kingdom. James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 make it very clear that this is the case. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Verse 15, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. God does not force any man to sin against him. Man freely chooses to sin against the Lord. However, the Lord has chosen The Lord has chosen in his decree to allow men to sow sin and has ordained the sins of man and uses the sins of man to glorify his justice and to glorify his grace. Can I fully understand all of these truths? No. But I do believe them because they're both clearly revealed by God in his holy word. Just because the sin of Judas in betraying Christ was eternally foreordained by God did not excuse Judas from the heinous sin that he had committed. He could not say that, Lord, I was foreordained to betray Christ. Where unto that man, the Lord said. He is responsible for his sin, and he will stand before God to give an account. It is better that that man were never born, the Lord Jesus says. Judas freely and voluntarily committed that sin, and he will be judged accordingly. Again, we find in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the same truth taught. For the apostle Peter says on the day of Pentecost concerning Christ, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This was preordained. Foreordained that Christ should suffer this crucifixion, the betrayal, crucifixion that was brought upon him. Ye have taken, the passage goes on, speaking to the Israelites, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, yet you are wicked, and having brought this to pass. Let us not fall, villains, into the sin of those who excuse their sin. For seek to lessen the significance of this sin because it was foreordained to occur. That is mere fatalism. That is case at all, at all, whatever will be, will be. To the contrary, may our sin against our God always crush our hearts, for we are responsible. Let the sovereignty of God, Jones, lift your hearts after you have repented and sought his forgiveness, knowing that he is so great and so mighty that he is able to use even your unfaithfulness to glorify him and to sanctify him. 
And finally, dear ones, in closing, I'd have you remember Judas was a hypocrite and betrayed Christ. Let us not fail to see where hypocrisy in our lives will lead us. And we practice hypocrisy. And if we practice that hypocrisy in one area of our life and merely go through the motions of our faith without faith or repentance, we will eventually begin practicing hypocrisy and going through the motions of our faith in another area of our life and then in another area of our life and then in another area of our life without faith and repentance. And so we become such hypocrites that we are living a complete lie. And I would suggest to you, this is the one who eventually turns his back upon the truth he knows and lives contrary to it. And eventually is willing to sell the Lord the 30 pieces of silver, or the popularity of men, or the favor and approval of others. Whatever the cost, he's willing to sell out his faith and what he has believed, what he has trusted in with regard to Christ and his truth. You know, let all hypocrisy in our lives drive us, impel us to Christ rather than away from Christ. Let us cast even our hypocrisy, our betrayal, and all of our unfaithfulness upon Christ that we may find in him a Savior sufficient to deliver us and save us from all of our sins, even those most heinous sins. The Lord invites you all today to come to Christ. The Lord came to, to die for hypocrites. The Lord came to die for traitors. The Lord came to die for those who are unfaithful. The Lord came to die for sinners, dear ones, even the chief of sinners. Confess and acknowledge how great your sin is before the Lord. Come to Christ and embrace him alone for your eternal salvation. Come to him if you have already embraced him for your eternal salvation and confess these sins and live in the forgiveness of a merciful God. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it is to our shame and disgrace that we have even intentionally committed such sins of betrayal and unfaithfulness in thy presence. We have not even considered, O Lord, the seriousness of our sins at times. Because we have viewed thee as being so far away, this, O Lord, is a practical atheism. Forgive us, our God. For thou art art one who is near us. Thou art one who is with us. And our sins are committed in thy presence. We pray, Heavenly Father, that thou would cause us to see that just as thou art a holy God, 
Just as thou art an omniscient God, who knows all and sees all, so thou art a merciful God, who even forgives the sins that have been committed in thy presence. Lord, we pray that we would not allow the invitation of Christ to go unheeded today, that we would run, that we would flee, that our hearts would not become callous and we continue in our betrayal, that, Father, our hearts would be humbled before thee, that we would seek thy most holy face, desire to walk in faithfulness and truth before thee, in spite of all of our weaknesses. O Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.